Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, where we hear the stories of information security professionals. This podcast explores different angles, out-of-the-box ideas, and the human element of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP so we can continue to bring on amazing guests. You can watch videos of the interviews at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. In today's episode, we have Andrew Kennedy from uh, Google. He's a a compliance specialist with more than 20 years of experience. And today we're going to explore the complex subject of continuous compliance and security by default or compliance by default and how that can be applicable to the whole application security program and to the whole cloud. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. This is your host, Francesco, and today we had the absolute pleasure to have Andy Kennedy. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. How are you doing today? Thank you very much, Francesco, and yes, uh, my pleasure to be able to join you today. Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm absolutely fine. It's like it's a nice and sunny day. Usually in England, we complain a lot about the sun, but we have been absolutely blessed. But it's an absolute pleasure to to welcome you. And uh, if you want to share with with our with our listener, uh, where you're coming from, what's your experience, and uh, what you're passionate about. Certainly. So by way of introduction, uh, my name is Andy Kennedy, and I am a security compliance specialist uh, within the Google Cloud part of Google. And principally what that means is that my role is to try and help uh, our clients uh, basically on their journey uh, to the cloud uh, and trying to address any questions or concerns they might have in that regard. Fantastic, and it's absolutely a pleasure because that's as you as you know as we had conversation about it. It's one of my pet peeves: continuous compliance. We had few chat and discussion with few other cloud providers. I'm not going to name names, but it's it's definitely a thing. And um, I've, I've also worked a little bit on on GCP for continuous compliance, and I like for city a lot. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> Hence why I said it's it's probably one of one of the good topics. But maybe if you want to share, that, what is maybe the funny story that you you stumbled across in your in your career in in Google uh, for for client perspective or, or uh, internal? Yeah, I think when we have tried to help uh, clients on that journey uh, to the cloud, um, I think. Is easily um, a, a challenge to try and explore the vocabulary around different product names, different product sets, and technology. And I think probably one of the biggest downfalls of our industry actually is this curse of the acronym. <laughs> I mean, that by acronym, I can't agree more. <laughs> if we could just remove acronyms, um, and I think as an industry, I think we should have an amnesty against acronyms, a triple E. I like that. I'm going to quote you on that. (laughs) (laughs) Because the craziness, I think, is just we keep even reusing acronyms in the same way um, for different contexts. So, yeah, I think it's gone a bit nuts. So if we could remove acronyms, I think we'd be happy. And, yeah, um, the amount of confusion that gets caused by people speaking in tongues with acronyms is just nuts. So fingers crossed one day we'll see the back of those. 
I believe we won't because uh, I find I find a lot of presentation and conversation to be a stream of acronyms, and then you say, "Okay, can you explain that, please?" Oh, you don't want to sound stupid. Have you ever been in a meeting where you say everybody's talking in acronyms? Maybe if I say it, what that means, or I don't understand that, I sound stupid, or that 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 must be. It is, and I, and I can give you a very you know coarse example of that. So um, a few years ago, uh, I had the pleasure to be heavily involved in working with clients on a topic of network functions virtualization or NFE. And to give you an idea of how the conversation went, it was around the EPC as part of an EPS as a VNF running on top of an NFVI orchestrated by a manual uh, as sort of uh, you know, a broader kind of you know, project around 4G. And you're thinking, People just do not talk like that, right? That's just nuts. Yeah, so, yeah, I think if we could stop that type of behavior, I think we'd all be better about this. I love that. A string of names just, okay, can you translate that in human language? Exactly. I mean, you think about it. I mean, I guess because we'll become a little bit rushed in our daily lives, you know, we don't like to use the terms like evolved packet code or network functions virtualization mm. or the NFVI infrastructure, which is network functions virtualization infrastructure or the management and network orchestration layer. I mean, all of these things take time to say. But the reality is with the complexity, I think, that goes around our industry and some of the, the challenges we have to bring new people to the industry, I think those who have been around a bit longer, we've actually got a responsibility in a, in a more serious note to try and help stop the use of some of this complex language. Because mm. I think what it does sometimes is turn people away uh, from what we're trying to accomplish. And I, I do generally believe that one day um, we will hopefully see light. And I can always live in hope that uh, we will we'll stop using acronyms as badly as we do. Shall we, shall we start the no-acronym manifesto? I think that's <laughs> the like no-acronym movement. Sign me up. Sign me up. All right, I'm I'm gonna pick you up on that. I'm gonna I'm gonna publish the manifestos on one page. <laughs> no, but uh, jokes aside, I think it, your your initiative and, and your ideas is absolutely right. Uh, we have to commit to actually make, especially cyber. I don't know. Uh, technology tend to be complicated by cyber. It's like it's a complicated field to get into from the very beginning. And then we make it much more complicated with acronyms and, and anything that you want to use. And we have to use also the IT acronyms. So it's like double whammy. <laughs> I'm sorry, Francesco. I mean, uh, you'll be very familiar, I'm sure, uh, if you happen to deal with those that are maybe on the compliance or even legal side of a business. And it's interesting when you use the term, for example, IP. So I'm sure you're sitting there thinking IP, intellectual property, or did you True. internet protocol? I don't know. <laughs> we haven't yet clarified. And it depends by the context. Exactly. And I think that's the thing. It's uh, easy to get lost in this world of jargon. But then exactly on that point, when you're talking about a contract, which IP are you referring to? So you have IP technology and IP IP. <laughs> and the IP of the IP. <laughs> I think we have to time out. We have to stop. We have to stop. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I've been in kind of those situations. I've been in contract negotiation when I had to just, you know, stick on the wall. This is the term. I mean, this is a, the technology translation. This is a term that we use for this. And it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. So I, I, I can't agree with you more on we are making your life more complicated. But also to tell you a story, I was, I, I tend to, whenever I do interview, I tend to just put the candidate at ease and say, if you don't remember acronyms, because people get stressed with acronyms, if you don't remember acronyms, just describe to me what it means. 
and sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but to be honest with you, if if so, if I can't um, uh, explain what uh, what's been behind an acronym or even a technology, then it means I haven't had the grasp on it. What do you think about it? Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, um, I genuinely believe that sometimes those who are really good at what they do, they, they try and help others understand. I think yeah. when we hide behind acronyms, sometimes it does actually demonstrate maybe a lack of depth of understanding on the topic because maybe you're trying to demonstrate your expertise by using this kind of new language. And, and many years ago, um, I was very fortunate to be in a very well-known investment bank, actually, as a, a graduate trainee. And I remember sitting in front of an ex-trader, and he basically took us through basic financial industry training. And it was interesting that there's uh, parallels there too, and I think this happens across the world in different industries, because he basically stood in front of us and said, the world of finance can be incredibly complex. And the reason why you know, people charge fees like they do in the financial services industry is because they make it complex sometimes. And he says, <laughs> yes, if, true. if you can take away the jargon, if you can take away the complex language and you make it easy to understand, then there's no value um, in, in, in that. Everybody could do it. Anybody could do it. And I think it was something that shocked me a little bit. I mean, I was young, um, fresh, you know, bright-eyed. And I think over my, my career, I've definitely learned that uh, sometimes you have to kind of take a step back and just say, and not be afraid. And I think, again, for people coming into the industry, not to be afraid and say, actually, I don't know what that means. Could you maybe just yeah. explain to me what it is? What, what do you mean by that acronym? And actually... Well, maybe maybe on the side, maybe on the side, because I did, I'll tell you a funny story. I did that uh, in, a, in a presentation that uh, I'm notoriously very blunt about this kind of thing. And I embarrassed uh, a couple of presenters because they, they didn't know. So it, it can create very, very tricky conversations. So my suggestion for everybody that is listening, do that, but do it on the side, not on the stage. <laughs> that's, that's a fair point. Yeah, that's a fair point. No, but it tends to be, I mean, we, we just used to it. it not just because uh, people don't know, but people might have used terminology and not know what's behind it. You know, you, you used to use it all the time and your brain just connects to it, doesn't connect to the rationale behind. And I think maybe inside the world, we're more used to unpack the truth and see what's behind. Oh, that's, that's generally speaking what we do. But in other fields, it might not be the same. And starting with an analyst that, as you said, you want to impress the other person, you want to impress, you're the first job. You want to just show that you are confident and competent and start using those terms without understanding. So sometimes it's challenging. And, and I mentor a lot of people and I say, don't shy out. Uh, even if you get a, uh, a bump in the road right now because uh, you ask explanations, so you might sound stupid now, but you'll sound much more clever later on when you can actually explain what that means. But it's 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 tough. But how did you? So actually, uh, what's your definition of cloud? Let me let me challenge you on that. What's the simplest way you can describe me cloud? <laughs> and then we jump on compliance. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, um, I think it's a really important distinction because there are the more well-defined versions, as you mentioned. But I think the term of cloud has become somewhat nebulous. So I think for me, often when I meet maybe with stakeholders who maybe are not necessarily from the technology domain, when I have a conversation with them and talk about cloud, 
And often the conversation will go, well, you know, what does cloud actually mean to you? Mm-hmm. Then the conversation tends to break down in, in, as a generalization into two areas. The first is around the concern for their employees and their workforce, how to make them more productive and to how to enable better collaboration amongst um, the, the remote teams. And the second is around how to build and deploy applications that maybe you need to serve those internal clients. But I think mm-hmm. as organizations move to more of a, a digital kind of era, then ultimately those applications and that data might actually be externally facing too in order to monetize their business. So I think when it comes to cloud, really it kind of sits down to, for me, from a technical perspective, around providing that secure end-user compute model for employees in the workforce, or it's around secure hosting of applications and data, ultimately then goes to serve that business need. And I think that's probably not as common a definition as we maybe see in kind of the, the reference texts. Yeah. I'm sure there are better definitions. But for me, it's kind of important to link it back to those business reasons. You know, people really do care about how to improve the productivity and collaboration. And they really do care about how to, to use technology as a way of building and running and operating their business and either serving, as I mentioned, either internal clients or their customers. I like that definition. Never, I never heard it. I usually just say, "Well, somebody has computer." <laughs> so I'll just overly simplify that as like, "Yeah, you spin it on your own server. You just delegate to somebody else." Um, two different layers, but no, I, li- I like the definition into the business because, specifically in cyber, it, it tends to be one thing we forget that we serve the business, and we serve. We shouldn't impair the business to actually do what, but what is there to do, makes money and <laughs> develop product or ultimately makes money because uh, security without business mm. <laughs> and the other way around as well. Well, we are servants of those who are effectively there to build the products and services that people need to use. Um, and our role uh, and our influence, I think, uh, as a security community is to help enable that. So yeah, I fully agree. Uh, we, we are servants of, of that team. Yeah, sometimes I forget because I think as an industry, we went through several phases when we were behind the room, just the guy that was saying no and configuring firewall. I still remember my day when configuring firewall was was a thing <laughs> or an IPS or, or and you do that for the whole day and that's, that's as secure as you get. And then you moved into application security, then cloud became the thing, then we became part of the business when the C-level and the CISO became the thing. So I think we, we moved a lot more than any other, any other technology industry, I think. We moved uh, together with the technology and as an industry trying to be create our new identity. I think right now we've been even more challenged with the DevSecOps movement where, you know, traditional role like architect or traditional file configuration people or operating system configuration people are thrown in cloud and DevSecOps in this new, sorry for using acronyms, <laughs> but um, they're thrown in this new mode of operation. So it's, it's creating a little bit of a challenge. What's, what's your view on that? It is. I think to kind of reflect back on your observations, I think that there is indeed um, a closer relationship than there has ever been before, at least in my experience, between those who have a primary focused interest on information and internet security and those that are effectively 
translating the business requirements into you know a, a technology uh, mm-hmm. deliverable, such as an application or you know a data analytics pipeline or a machine learning model, whatever it might be. And and we're not calling it AI; <laughs> we're calling it actually machine learning. <laughs> actually, we, we had in the previous podcast uh, Joe Gray, that uh, is is a, is a fantastic um, social engineer. And uh, funny enough, the conversation went all about uh, machine learning and how we can augment the use of uh, machine learning in in other fields different than machine learning, like social engineering. There's a, a little bit of a new new thing. And we stress the fact that the machine learning is not AI. <laughs> yeah, as you might imagine, uh, at Google, we were obviously big fans of uh, the pursuit uh, with your deep mind research team into the artificial general intelligence concept. But uh, yeah, I mean, on the machine level. But I think, I think, I think well, to, to break to break uh, a concept or, or effectively a positive, to give a brownie point to, to Google, Google has developed very, very specific uh, machine learning trained algorithm and then offer it to the community. So I, I can call it like um, AI as a service. Can we call it AI as a service? You could, yeah, yeah. Definitely that's part of the offering for sure. Yeah, so I think I think instead of just going crazy, it was a very specific and uh, precise offering. So if any any of the provider that have respect for Google for not just fluff it up and just call it AI, whatever. Yeah, and I think on that, but it's an overly it's an overly abused uh, word. Sorry, what were you saying? It is. I mean, I think on, on that point, I mean, you know, Google's always had a timeless mission to kind of organize the world's information um, and make it universally accessible and useful. I think when it comes to a lot of the work that's done in that research and also in the actual externalization of the technologies that Google uses to actually embed machine learning, for example, into many of its products. Um, then there's examples of that, things like TensorFlow, which is probably the most mm-hmm. popular machine learning framework, uh, as well as a number of research papers and, and other developments in that space about you know, the, the data engineering side of machine learning, which is often ignored, actually, I think, if you have the opportunity to ever spend some time with you know the data science community, uh, it's always mm-hmm. kind of fascinating me the fact that you know the, the the thing that everybody talks about is the machine learning model, but actually the data engineering side is something that is actually you know the heavy lifting. And yeah, it's great- preparing data set it's is the most heavy lifting part, training algorithm, making sure that the output is, is the one as expected. And it's a lot of math. <laughs> it's a ton lot of math. That's why uh, actually my, my uh, background in university was uh, data science, applied AI, and then I moved into into cyber. But it's my it's my passion. Uh, data science is a passion and, and I was passionate about AI and data science before it was cool for the cool kids. <laughs> <laughs> you know all about it. And I think coming back to your original question, actually, um, you know, about the tie-in with maybe, you know, the development community with the data science community. I mean, those are two great examples. So if we think about on the developer side, one of the things that's become very apparent is the need to be able to codify security policy so mm. that we can leverage automation. So that ultimately, you know, going back to your earlier comment about you know, the InfoSec community, maybe had a little bit of a reputation. I don't agree with it, but maybe a reputation for saying no. Well, actually, I think as the two teams begin to work better together, uh, you begin to see then that codification, that automation. So that ultimately, as part of the continuous integration and delivery pipelines, that ultimately security is actually inherently part of the deliverable. And I think the same is true on the data science side. Of, I mean, to your point, um, on the data engineering 
and discipline. If we think about you know, all of the challenges as an infosec community we have to deal with around things like data anonymization, around tokenization, around understanding, for example, privacy thresholds, um, mm -hmm. all of that begins to apply and understanding, for example, governance lineage of data. That is something that then really comes down to those who are actually responsible uh, for supporting, for coaching, for you know, being effectively the, the, the reference in their organization to help support the data science community and others with some of those challenges. So, you know, I think from the, the, the world of, you know, the, the person who does the checkbox and the yes or no, I think now actually the, the reality is that I see the InfoSec community and those other kind of teams, those other disciplines really come together. And I think there's a lot of mutual respect that I see now building. And I think as a culture within an organization, that's definitely something that, you know, I would be a big advocate and, and say that that's a prerequisite in order for us to move forward. There you go. Cultural change and positive news about the InfoSec. We're coming together. Hey, Francesco here. A very quick message from our sponsor and then we return back. This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of NSC42 Limited, your cybersecurity partner. Cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization, and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? Visit www.nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote. Actually, I mentioned in your point and, and picking your words on, on that. Um, I, I absolutely agree that now the community are coming close together because um, compliance and how do we use the data and the security are becoming inherently close. And with the comp with the regulation becoming tighter and tighter, or being like GDPR was effectively the first one that was heavily on, on data protection and, and privacy and, and the heavy one, and then now is expanding with uh, the Californian law a little bit more in, in the US. I think it's, it's becoming more of... I don't know, maybe, that, maybe that's a question for you. What, what do you see more about security or about regulation coming first in, in any of the, the projects you consult? Um, I mean, I think they're parallel threads, so apologies, I'm maybe dodging the question a little bit. I don't want to come across <laughs> as a, a politician. But I think the truth is, is that they do go hand in hand. There's no one without the other. And I, I see that as I work with our clients, then... You know, the stakeholders that have the responsibility and bear, you know, the brunt of the challenges around ensuring around compliance, around data protection regulation. But then you've also got specific industry and domain regulation compliance also exists, whether you're in the, the manufacturing sector, whether you're in finance or, you know, whether you're, you're dealing with healthcare information. I think the, the, the reality is that there is always that kind of bridge that exists between Understanding the technical controls, understanding the commercial controls, because often when, and I think coming back to maybe more specifically to cloud providers, when you contract with a cloud provider, you know, there are commercial terms of service, data processing, yeah. security terms, et cetera, that go around that. The legalese. The, legalese. the contract and then part. The last piece is really audit controls. 
And there, you know, the common ones, uh, you know, for example, probably the gold standard would be the ISO certifications, as well as retrospective audits through kind of SOC 2, SOC 3 audits that, that are there. But then, of course, you know, the, the gate opens to, you know, all of the, the domain-specific uh, requirements. So you mentioned and alluded to the fact that then you go cross-border, you go into the US, you know, you've got things like FedRAMP compliance. Um, and again, that opens further kind of conversations into things like NIST cybersecurity frameworks, et cetera. So, sure. Uh, yeah, because we can't agree on on, on a common standard. For some, everybody has a different opinion of cyber. Specifically, US and Europe has two different ideas. Asia, Asia actually is 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 one that you haven't seen. You know, a flourishing one of new frameworks. Um, or so, personally, I haven't. Yeah. So personally, um, I think it's it's an area where uh, there are clearly specific regions which have actually got some very advanced uh, data protection laws. You're right. I think that Japan, for example. Yeah, but I think that I'm trying to think the correct term: homologation, aggregation. Um, I'm losing maybe the, the thesaurus today, but that grouping of countries together to actually bring something that's, that's common. And I think you know the, the general data protection regulation is obviously probably the the, the most prominent. It's more young, maybe. Yeah, they're more young to towards that part. I think Europe is the one that actually took a, a strong stand. On, on data protection and yeah we like it so but going back to the social engineering I was was joking uh, with my previous guest on how easy sometimes to do social engineering in the US and how hard it is to go to do it in Europe because of the regulation and the amount of data that is available over the web so positive note but from from my personal experience I've seen I'll tell you a funny story uh, when I was talking with a, a bunch of development group they pegged me don't remove compliance, don't remove audit. And I said, how can this, this developer love compliance and audit? Usually they're the one against. And they give me the thing that I use over and over and over. Audit enabled me to justify the time to spend on the security, on fixing security element with my business stakeholders. And that was a light bulb when you use... Usually, is is you know compliance and security they go they don't go hand in hand. They say compliance is not security and security is not compliant, and there is that eternal battle. And I think that was sparked by ISO and the audit being a little bit flimsy. Not to say that it is a great regulation is 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 a great framework and if you use it properly, but a lot of the time compliance is not security. True. But it was it was amazing that thing that said. Give me the compliance, give me the audit so that I have the stick to actually enforce the security stuff or justify the security spending. Yeah. And, and I've seen a lot of times. So I don't know. And, and what's in your experience? Use use compliance to actually push forward security or security better. It does. And I think as well, um, whilst you know, your, your earlier kind of remark around you know, cloud being somebody else's computer, I might paraphrase <laughs> that incorrectly. I mean, clearly as you see these commercial relationships establish themselves between you know an entity whose maybe core competence as a business is to manufacture a widget or to provide some form of service to their clients not run it and therefore they look to cloud providers to help take away a lot of that overhead you know i mean the reality is operating and running networks storage fabrics and um, large scale distributed compute is both expensive timely and probably for many organizations, isn't their core function or core responsibility or role. It just happens to be this artifact of the fact that we're dependent on technology in order to meet the business requirement. Yeah. So as we begin to see organizations work and build those commercial relationships with cloud providers, 
then there needs to be a common language. There needs to be a vocabulary. There needs to be something there that both parties can have consistency. Um, and I think my general observation in the industry uh, is that speaking with the clients I deal with, the reflect back on things like, you know, we will take services from multiple cloud providers. We will take services um, in a way that means that we have portability and we, we, we're not necessarily locked into one organization or one partner. And the challenge and the thing that you know, I feel empathy with with our clients is that, first of all, you know, we talked earlier on and we joked about acronyms. Well, the same is also true for product names as well, because you know, each cloud provider has different product names for the same thing. And it's like... Databases, anyone? Yeah. <laughs> storage. The head is like exploding with, so did you mean that? Did you mean, so this is object. I am. I am is the only one that everybody agrees on, actually. Funny enough. <laughs> You're right. And, and hopefully, fingers crossed, one day we'll get harmony there. But I think as we see that kind of challenge of dealing with all of these different product names, yeah, for in different terminology, having consistency in compliance frameworks actually is, is, is something that is important. I don't think it's necessarily that pretty. It's not that glamorous. Frankly, for some people, it can be a little bit dull and boring. I don't necessarily think that has to be true. Actually, I think there is some kind of really interesting technical artifacts around compliance. Um, you know, all you have to do is take a look at things like the Center for Internet Security Benchmarks. Mm. I mean, you might say, well, there's a bunch of rules there, but actually, if you are a technologist at heart, what you're beginning to see are people codify those policies that I mentioned earlier on, so that what you can do is take those kind of frameworks and use them to effectively establish a baseline against what's been deployed by their okay. colleagues. And I think taking that one step further as we begin to see that mature into other uh, compliance frameworks, uh, I think as we, you know, my hope as an industry, as we mature in that area, you know, the rules that get built, they will be codified and we will be able to automate these things. So, you know, in the same way that operations used to be very kind of, and, and apologies for those operations, but it used to be seen as quite a dull role. Actually, you know, when I came to Google, one of the things I suddenly was really surprised about is we had these people who were site reliability engineers, which in other terms might be called operations. And they were held up as, you know, some of the most advanced, most technically capable uh, engineers that you'll ever meet. And, you know, they've written some fantastic books on the subject. And for me, that was, you know, a telling example of, you know, people taking maybe a role that others maybe shy away from and making it their own by effectively you know, bringing that into the and, and really doing something that's special. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's uh, from from Google perspective, one of the flagship where you say uh, the automation shouldn't be scary. The automation should be an enabler to actually not do the dull stuff, but actually to let machine do the dull stuff and you do the intelligent part. And there, we were actually discussing on a couple of podcasts ago about the trade-off between automation and when you should act on it. Like, uh, when automation becomes, for the sake of automation, becomes too complicated that you could have, you know, fixed the problem yourself in less time. <laughs> and and sometimes we have this CTO and, and this stream of, of things like, let's automate everything. And people get terrified. Oh, you're going to lose our jobs. <laughs> now, you have this stream of things. But uh, as you just said, uh, continuous compliance is, is exactly in that field where you can automate this rule set and sys, as you rightly mentioned, and the cloud control matter on the other end, uh, where the two framework put together or the two element put together to actually codify or start creating that uh, 
library effectively or controls that you can take a step forward and codify. Yeah. So what, what's your view on, on, on the future of continuous compliance versus point-in-time compliance? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I would reflect back on kind of my earlier comment, which was the fact that I see the different disciplines come closer together, uh, where we see the embodiment or the embedding of technical controls into effectively the, the build pipelines. Mm-hmm. And that maintains ultimately, in the same way as an analogy, I guess, that you know, if we look at technologies such as containers, you know, we always build from source. What we don't do is go into a container, log in, and then suddenly make changes internally within the container. What we do is we basically kill the container. Hopefully not. Hopefully (laughs) if we're doing containers, right? That would be be the case. But the same should also be true, I think, um, as we move to continuous compliance in the way that we apply controls. So rather than, you know, the point in time checks, you know, once a year, um, and we do the tick box, and then, you know, next week somebody then basically flaunts that control and and goes outside of the, uh, or drifts outside of that compliance, we can actually put these things into the actual build process and the build steps. And there are many examples actually of that um, being, the, being the case. So, you know, one example would be things like, you know, policy constraints that maybe make sure that you cannot deploy, for example, a virtual machine outside of a given region. You know, I think all mm. the cloud providers, you know, they all operate data centers across the globe. But in certain countries, you know, examples being Germany is you know, probably one of the more canonical ones. You know being able to constrain and restrict a resource so that it might not necessarily be intentional. It just might be accidental because somebody copied and pasted some code. They maybe forgot to, to check and they could potentially deploy a resource outside of, of a given region. And having the guardrails in place uh, means that ultimately you can maintain that compliance. And that's a very simple example, but you can go as, you know, as sophisticated and as complex as we like on that up and through to, for example, things like technology known as binary authorization, where actually there are you know, cryptographic attestations that get associated with maybe a, a given uh, artifact that then gets deployed. So that ultimately you have lineage all the way through to the kind of the original source code so that you can actually understand how and when and who effectively um, influenced maybe what actually got built and got deployed into production. And again, lineage is something that's pretty important. It's something that is, again, a lesson that we learned at Google. Oh, that's amazing. I actually, I actually didn't know that. <laughs> no, that's that's cool because then you can trace all the way from the original and, and you can see who touched what at that which point in, in time. Almost like blockchain, but it's not like blockchain. <laughs> no, it's not, not blockchain, that's for sure. I think that one, uh, yeah, that, we'll maybe keep that one for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I like the idea because another one of pet PV is application security and, and the lineage of whatever is deployed in production to the original source code and is a nightmare in any kind of organization that you touch it because who touches a repository, who built it, who tested it, and where it is deployed. Even if you have the traceability, it would be great. But very rarely you do that, unless you have a very, an organization that is built around the engineering, not the other way around. I mean, that's, that's, that's the nature of things. And very few organizations here in the UK, at least, are built like that. I mean, in, in Silicon Valley, maybe it's a little bit different because it's, it's all engineering focus and then you, you create business on the back of engineering. But here is IT then in hands of business rather than their uh, business being built around IT. Maybe we get better. Yeah, I mean, agility, 
is more than just having a great CICD pipeline. It really is, you know, a culture, as you mentioned, around the engineering disciplines that sit behind us. And, you know, coming back to the InfoSec domain for a second, the fact that as part of the, I guess, the environment that is used, um, it really does come down to, you know, the interworking between things like vulnerability scanners, bringing compliance checks into the, the picture, having those automated so that ultimately, you know, we don't go back to the bad old days of raising change control tickets, obviously, to get somebody to go and, you know, press a button. And then, of course, you know, you alluded to probably everybody's favorite topic earlier on, which is around identity and access management. You know, it's, uh, you know, that's always fun. So, again, making sure we have... The one that creates most headache in the whole community. <laughs> it's my favorite things to shoot down, but it's the most important thing because if if you, if you trace it back, it goes back to the military where it was least least privileged control, and we rarely do least privileged nowadays. We we tend to do in the majority of organization trust and verify. And funny enough, uh, if you trace it back, uh, I think uh, I was listening to a podcast and it was Kennedy that said trust and verify, but as a joke. And everybody and everybody started taking it as a mantra, trust and verify. But trust and verify was a joke that Kennedy said to Gorbachev to say, well, we're going to trust you, but we're going to verify that you don't have nuclear war. <laughs> we trust that you want to disarm, but we're going to verify. And we took it in InfoSec and, and applied it across the board and and then we complain, well, we don't have this privilege, but we don't have this privilege at the core. And I've seen very rarely organizations that build this privilege at the core. Yeah, and actually, um, that's actually been a problem we've been doing quite a lot of work on. And I think, I, I hate to use this, this phrase, actually, machine learning is the answer, because it can sometimes be <laughs> used as the answer to everything. Right? But it's true. It's true. I don't want to say every problem can be solved with machine learning, but this is a great example. And... It is actually something today that um, is available where if you take an example of a user, that user will be probably part of a, a group. And often, if you look at public cloud today, or indeed on-premise, the reality is, is that you have roles and permissions, and permissions are the most kind of fine-grained kind of constructs that maybe allow you to read you know, a specific object of data, and then you'll have another permission that allows you to write a specific object, and you'll have another permission that allows you to list those you know, objects. And again, with that kind of granularity, those get mapped maybe into a role, which then groups those permissions. Mm. And it's often a case of just because, you know, we're under time constraints, time pressures, it's easy to maybe overgrant those roles and permissions to, a, you know, maybe a given group or user to your point, which then kind of breaks that principle behind least privileged user access management. Well, actually, if we turn that in its head and we say, well, look, you know, one of the great things that we get from infrastructure and from, you know, public cloud platforms is the ability to generate lots of telemetry. You generate lots of data. And actually, one of the things that we, we can do is we can learn from that data. So ultimately, you know, applying the concepts around data analytics, machine learning, you can ultimately then begin to take a look at a view of 
what is an appropriate role for maybe somebody who's performing that specific set of functions? What is the pattern that they will follow? What are the common, yeah. what is the commonality that is taking, demystifying effectively machine learning? And I completely agree with you. And is, is demystifying the machine learning aspect and applying it in an intelligent way. What is the common trend on all these people and look at the data or let a machine actually look at the data to find the common trend so it can suggest us the proper set of roles and it change all the time so you can you can retrain the algorithm to rechange it. And I think that's kind of a lot of zero trust networks <laughs> because... Yeah, I think I think Wendy Wendy Nata from Tool Security was was telling us at Upset Cali that the history of zero trust network and where it originally came from, and then Google made it absolutely absolutely popular or Forrester or Google. Let's put it half of the, half of the play. But Google is the only one that actually worked or one section of Google. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think you're alluding to the Beyond Core principles. Um, so maybe for yes. those that are listening to this, the Beyond Core principles are. A set of white papers that articulate the the architectural approach, the design approach, but also uh, many of the lessons learned um, as Google kind of evolved uh, from a kind of an IT model for its uh, workforce that many of us will be familiar with in this call. And it's actually one of the points, Francesco, that you know I'm pretty passionate about, which is, you know, I, I came into the industry back in 1996, and back then you would get your laptop. You would basically get, uh, you know, a piece of software for your uh, email, another piece of software for your work process, and another piece of software for your browser, another piece of software for your presentation package spreadsheet, and then you would have another piece of software which was a VPN. Um, and of course, behind all this, you would have antivirus, anti-malware running. Mm. If you move forward to 2020, actually, for many organizations, that's still the operating model for sure. the end-user workforce. Now, at Google, one of the things we realized was. Basically, that VPN, what it does is extend, obviously, that trust domain from the data center really into you know, the, the network in which you're operating in the, in the laptop. In. There must be a better way. And I think really what it came down to was leveraging you know, strong cryptographic you know, uh, means to encrypt traffic and make sure that we can securely communicate with applications. And obviously, that relied upon modern web technology. So you know, we see mainly exposing those as web services and protecting those web services through proxies and other means, but also uh, the relationship with strong identity as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we go back, you know, to 96, the bit that I missed out was the fact that our primary authentication measure was passwords. And passwords are still today probably one of the biggest banes of many of the people who are listening to this, this call's life. And if you look at the, the kind of the NCSC's report from 2019, which talked about you know, common password usage. It's you know, people's brothers or sisters' names. It's football teams. It's still the common stuff. Football team is still the common thing. Yeah. Or just weird and random names. So eight, uh, 89, 40, a number that was part of a song. It seems to be the popular, most popular one. So bringing strong identity uh, to the front as well. And, and I think that was really where, you know, one of the things that, again, you know, I always say to people, if there's one thing to take away from, you know, whenever I do public talks, probably the emphasis is, Look into what security keys do and why they're so important. That cryptographic relationship between what the browser actually sees in the URL and actually the, the public private key cryptography function that exists on the key itself. So that ultimately when there's a challenge presented by the thing you think you're logging into, um, ultimately allows that to be signed and then returned back as part of that challenge. It, it really kind of disrupts 
That's one of yours. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. It disrupts those fishes, that, that fishing channel or that, that kind of attack vector, such that remote adversity can effectively compromise those account credentials. And that's something that I think at Google, really, if you look at the foundation of something like Beyondcore, for sure it's exposing internal applications over the fabric of public key infrastructure and, and the common web security techniques that we have and marrying that to the browser and the security model of the browser so that ultimately we don't have to install 10 different applications, each of which you know then we have to detonate portable executable for. And also it's a terrible productivity experience, by the way, because how many people, when they switch on the laptop on a Monday morning, you have a two gigabyte download, what's the first thing they do is like, I'll park that until tomorrow, right? I mean, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to run that. So the fact that you have you know, the security model of the browser and then strong authentication with the key. I mean, today, if you look at many of the kind of the techniques, and, and I think this is really appropriate in the current environment that we find ourselves in, you know, one of the things at Google is we saw basically with um, you know, the, the, the pandemic that exists and the circumstances, um, today we get probably somewhere in the region around 240 million COVID-related spam messages. Um, True, right. You know, and I think... <laughs> That's on the rise. It's in the rise. And, and I think in that is then uh, a large proportion of um, messages that contain malware or, or other kind of techniques to try and uh, compromise people because ultimately people are getting used to being in an environment where it's abnormal. So, you know, if you get a message from your HR department with a PDF that says, here's some working from home instructions, people will naturally open that PDF and, you know, all chaos can ensue if, if you've not got the, the adequate protection on, on their end device. And I think yeah, no, I agree. One of the things we'll try and to do is obviously protect that as well. No, and, and I couldn't agree, agree more. So it just, uh, as Andy was referring, is the cryptographic key, of which I have many, but this is just one. Actually, this, I think it's the Google one. <laughs> That's one of the Google ones. <laughs> uh, it was back in the days when I was uh, playing around a lot with GCP. <laughs> <laughs> Small perks. But uh, no, multi-factor, regardless if it's a physical token, if it's an SMS, and there is a whole slack of uh, SMS tokens that are actually you know, multi-factor, well, it's better than a password itself. It can be circumvented, yes, anything can be circumvented, but it's just making it um, a little bit more complicated than the other adversary. But the other person that is next to you. So trying to, to have the bad guy look at the, the one that is easier if you want. And that's the kind of dodgy kind of thing to see cybersecurity is, is be le a little bit less attractive than the other person that is next to you. And I think using multi-factor is, is overall the, the stuff that I push for. And me, Tanya, John, on, on Twitter, we have a, an absolutely slacking campaign of if you find an organization that doesn't support multi-factor, add to this list. And we have a website that is saying, uh, these are all the companies that support multi-factor, and this is the one that they don't. Yeah. And, and I shared the link in the in the notes, but multi-factor is, is a really good thing. And going back to your beyond code, I totally agree with you. It's, it's, it's linked to a strong form of identity. But then I want to challenge you because I, I spent a lot of time in the UN in really, uh, well, we had satellite connection in 64K where this model actually get turned upside down and you can't do web browser-based and you go back to the endpoint being effectively uh, with all this application. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, if you go back in time, there, there was definitely uh, an element of truth to, to that story. But actually, with modern application development methods, with modern web technologies, with the, the, the browser as it stands today, and, and apologies, maybe being parochial, you know, particularly Chrome, um, 
actually you can work offline quite happily and indeed we do um, so it's actually designed to be operable in that manner um, and I think as we move to a world where actually cellular communication mobile communication as well as uh, broadband is ubiquitous um, and indeed at Google you know one of the things we are working on is to try and even bring broadband to areas of the world which are challenged in the project Loon is an example where we put the balloons into the stratosphere so that ultimately we can provide access for regions that wouldn't be served by physical infrastructure. Um, you know, one of the things is that as we, we get that, that, that level of ubiquitous access, yeah, I think the future will, will, will continue to evolve to the point where actually that distinction of being online and offline will really just hopefully get to a point that was something in the past. Uh, Everybody's connected. I still, I still would suggest that, yeah, I mean, today I think uh, many of the, the common functions uh, can still be done uh, broadly through the browser, but you are correct. I mean, there are certain types of applications that um, that clearly would be more appropriate for running on an endpoint. And that's where we see maybe that transition as well to what's the distinction between a mobile device such as a laptop and maybe what you might have on Tuna Lutra, uh through one of these things. Now. <laughs> yeah. But it is true. It's, it's like it is trying to make the service as frictionless. And I see that with G Suite becoming more and more usable, where you actually, you know, teach the application that is on your laptop because it's the ubiquity and the fact that you can edit the document or you can collaborate uh, throughout multiple people. And you, uh, and we forget that we run that through the browser. And I, I deeply embrace the fact that uh, Google developed the Google Chrome. Uh, uh, and the Chromebook because they, they tied in together very, very nicely. And they start doing security initiative like uh, we're going to ban all the HTTP uh, or we're going to just give a warning whenever a certificate is off. And those kind of things actually push the industry forward. And the policy driven by by Chrome that is is, is bringing the uh, effectively the, the, the um, web browser closer to the business and the fact is, okay, you want a regulation, you, you want to enforce something across the board, you can do that with this piece of software. Absolutely. No, I think, and it covers everything. I mean, today, you know, we're communicating across a, a video conference. Um, I mean, one of the great things is that uh, with modern web technologies now, like, you know, web real-time communications or WebRTC is unfortunately, we have to uh, make another acronym of Um you know, the fact that we can run these within the browser without having to download additional bits of software because, you know, many of these meeting packages, you know, they, they, you know, it's just yet another piece of software to run. So the fact that as we move towards standards-based technologies, whether that be in the authentication space, like with the, the FIDO Alliance and uh, the World Wide Web Consortium for WebAuthn, whether it be mm -hmm. around um, the multimedia communications channels through WebRTC for video conferencing, um, you know, the security model of the browser really kind of underpins a lot of what can, can be applied. And it's amazing that if I, if I reflect back in my earlier comment, which was in 24 years since I've been in the industry, certain things just haven't changed. The question is what will happen for maybe the next 24? Are we, are we going to continue down this, this path of, you know, having executables downloaded onto the desktop, which can then detonate and, you know, cause problems around ransomware and other kind of remote access codes? Or do we fundamentally say, do you know what, maybe there is another way. And, and actually, it doesn't need to be on all or nothing. I think one of the things is that um, delayed perfection is you know, the enemy sometimes of, of what we face in Infosec. Actually, there might be a large proportion of users within an organization that can be served by something like a, you know, a pure browser model. Uh, and there might be a proportion of, of users who, uh, and typically they tend to be IT users because we tend to think of ourselves as very special. 
But absolutely. And the problem is we kind of sometimes portray actually our own and I guess bias sometimes of our own aspirations and experience of what we want from a device. You know, we want 20 widgets in the in the, the title bar of our, our app, you know. We don't really actually, if you ask people, they just want to get their job done with, you know, the tool. And ultimately, they don't care about those 20 different little, you know, CPU monitoring, memory monitoring widget, you know, that shows you the fan speed. I mean, and network bandwidth, I mean, I don't know if you really need that, to be honest, but yeah, <laughs> maybe if we didn't take that um, that point of view. As a standard. <laughs> maybe we get to something to be a bit more secure. But that's when IT doesn't serve the business anymore, but IT is 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 kind of feeding himself by stuff and, and the business comes along. I think that's that's the constant battle of uh, the, the constant marriage of business and IT just, uh, you know, fighting each other and it's like the wife that tells the husband or the other way around and complain. But anyway, we I think we we reached to the low time limit, and it has been a beautiful conversation. I want I have so many other things that I want to talk to you about. Uh, continuous compliance was one, but I want to explore more and definitely the identity. But leave us with a positive message on cybersecurity, so to inspire the next generation. Other than don't use acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think if you're coming into this industry. It's a great time to be part of it. Um, I think fundamentally, the role of the CISO and security architects and engineers is more important than ever before. And the choice of technology, architecture, product selection is something that really now you as a, an infosec or internet security professional will influence. And your 10-second answer I would be would be, it's not about the tools and technology. As much as you know, Francesco and I have talked about that today, the reality is it's around training, experience, but most importantly than anything else, it's around practice. Because just because I did something 10 or 15 years ago, just because I had great training 10 or 15 years ago, if I haven't practiced it in the last few months, or in the last few weeks, or the last few days, then tomorrow, I'm not gonna be that effective. So practice, practice, practice. People in practice. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much, Andy. It's been a beautiful message and a fantastic conversation. I'd like to thank everybody that's listening to us. And uh, next podcast is going to be with Alyssa Miller, so be with us. Thank you, and see you soon. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, consider leaving us a review or sponsoring us on Patreon. It helps us bring on amazing guests and keep the podcast alive and free. Consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP and watch other episodes at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Thank you.